Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 19, Ticked Turks. This week, we're turning away from the British home isles and turning to a new source of vexation for the UK, Turkey. The chaos of the old Ottoman Empire collapsing had created a new mess that threatened the security that the UK had so desperately craved. They had managed to scoop up much of the Middle East along with the French, but the business of securing their influence within the core Turkish lands of Anatolia was far from over once the war had been concluded. Peace in Anatolia was, on paper, all supposed to be really simple. Per the Treaty of Sevres, practically everybody on the winning side would get a chunk of land, and the Turks would be isolated in a rump state, caged in by enemies. Too bad for the victors, the Turks decided that didn't suit them at all. So now we get to cover a truly ramshackle affair that will see an aborted attempt at carving up Anatolia and the Entente discovering the limits of their powers in the post-Versailles world. Now I'll admit that this conflict is primarily a Greek-Turkish affair, but the British inserted themselves at several points and the outcome of the conflict was seen as important to their imperial interests. The fate of the Turkish Straits, those narrow waterways that connected the Aegean and Black Seas, was considered simply too valuable to be left to the devices of the people who actually lived in the area. The confrontation would also prove to be kind of a straw on the camel's back for the political status quo back in Britain, and also provided an early demonstration of how far the Western liberal order could reach. This whole mess in Anatolia is fun because it presented Britain with a whole new challenge in world leadership. In the heartlands of the former Ottoman Empire, they faced a direct challenge to their vision of post-war era dominance, at least at a regional level. There was also a larger international aspect to this conflict, as the UK had to reckon with the herd of cats that comprised their allies. I don't want to regurgitate information from the treaty episodes, so I'll give a quick recap. Britain and France got the lion's share of the Turkish Empire, with most of the Arab territories falling under their jurisdiction. Italy had been promised a sizable chunk of mainland Anatolia adjacent to its holdings around the island of Rhodes in the Aegean. The major powers would also share the administration of a curious international neutral zone around the Turkish Straits. The zone would be open to navigation by any nation and would not be closed to anyone. Due to the importance of that stretch of real estate, it was to be administered by the Entente under the theoretical auspices of the League of Nations. There were also plans that allowed for the creation of Armenian and Kurdish states, although nobody had any concrete plans to make that happen. Greece, for its part, was angling to occupy the area around the city of Smyrna, which sits on the western coast of the Anatolian Peninsula, tantalizingly close to the Greeks' own Aegean islands. Long term, they also undoubtedly wanted to acquire Turkish Thrace and the city of Istanbul, so as to reverse the works placed on Constantinople and thus deprive them they might be giants of a catchy song. Lloyd George felt he owed the Greek Prime Minister Eleftherios Venizelos for his part in bringing Greece into World War I on the Entente side. Well, sort of, and eventually on to the Entente side, but the important thing is that Lloyd George felt a loyalty to the Greeks that was uncommon among UK leaders. So, uh, the Greeks looked forward to sending their army into their new territories with the full backing of the British Empire and the rest of the Entente. Which goes a long way to explaining why the Greeks felt they would be able to take on their much larger neighbor. 
which I suppose leads me into a brief overview of the geography of where all this is taking place. Anatolia is a region that comprises the bulk of modern-day Turkey, excepting the small corner in Europe centered around Istanbul, which itself was called Thrace. Anatolia is a hilly and mountainous country, and lacked good roads or railroads in those days. Given its rugged nature, it was also a natural fortress, at least in the interior. The coastal plains were another story, and its long stretches of beach were inviting to interlopers. It was along the western coasts that lived a large Greek minority, whom were also the basis of the Greek nation's claims to the area. It was along this open coastal stretch that the Greek army would make its opening invasion. Now, just how far the Greeks would or could go in 1919 was kind of an open question. The British, French, and Italians were spent as far as major wars went, and the Turks were in even worse shape at the moment, so for a brief moment the Greeks controlled their own destiny. The Ottoman Empire had collapsed, but the Sultan was still in Istanbul, and was still nominally in charge of the Turkish rump of that fallen empire. When it came time to sign the Treaty of Peace between Turkey and the Entente, in the Treaty of Sevres, it was the Sultan who had to approve it. As discussed in the treaty episode, though, Sevres would be the death warrant of the empire. The Greeks made their landings in May 1919 in the city of Smyrna. The city's primarily Greek population welcomed them with open arms, and for the moment, the campaign looked good. They would spend the next year settling into the general area around the city, staking out their claim to the region. The Turks, for the moment, offered no resistance. Their army had been decisively beaten in World War I, and rampant food and supply shortages paralyzed the country. To the east, control had crumbled as the Armenians and Kurds sought autonomy with the backing of the West. For them, it was not an ideal situation. It was the Greek landing in the West, though, that galvanized the defeated people into action. Before the Treaty of Sevres had even been agreed to, it was obvious that the Greeks were there for a land grab. If nothing was done, then the Turkish people would be forced off the coasts and into the Anatolian interior, corralled by their former subjects onto an isolated plateau. The people rallied around an army officer named Mustafa Kemal, the hero of Gallipoli. A new government, with the veneer of aspiring towards being a republic, was set up in Ankara, deep in Turkish territory. From there, he regrouped what he could of the military in central Anatolia and planned for his moment to expel the Greeks and shuffle the sultan off his throne. He would get his chance in June 1920, when the Greek army launched a summer attack from two directions. The army in Smyrna would march eastwards deeper into the interior, while an attack from the north would cross the Greek-Turkish border and occupy Thrace. It was this advance that forced the sultan to give in to the conditions of the Treaty of Sevres and legitimize the Turkish gains. In addition, the transfer of the Turkish Straits to international hands signaled to nationalists that foreign interference was never going to end without resistance. In a stroke, the Greeks had committed themselves to a foreign adventure they were in no way prepared for. The Sultan had undermined himself at the exact moment a popular strongman was presenting himself as a preferred replacement, and the Entente had inserted themselves in the middle of all this as some kind of peacekeepers. And in the case of the UK, they were a peacekeeper directly allied with the nation who was doing the invading. I suppose a better descriptor for them would be invasion moderator, which, I'll admit, doesn't roll off the tongue as well. Anyway, things in the Near East were heating up. 
It was around this time that fate proves itself to either have a weird sense of humor or the narrative tastes of a simpleton. The Greek king Alexander was bitten by a goddamn pet monkey and developed sepsis. He was soon dead at the age of only 27. This instigated a political crisis in Greece, as the king had no children of his own. And instead of reasonably turning to the king's brother, eyes turned instead to his dad. The previous king, Constantine I, had been deposed in 1917 under furious pressure from the Entente due to his very pro-German stance, and after Venizelos had formed a breakaway government in Greece to join the war against the Central Powers. To make a long story short, there was a lot of tension between the current Prime Minister and the ex-king. The matter came to a head in the Greek elections that took place just days after Alexander's death, when Venizelos' enemies gained two-thirds of the parliament. This came as something of a surprise to those who followed Greek politics at the time, as it looked like the nation was on the ascendancy. Unfortunately, life isn't a rote simulation that always rewards expanding national boundaries, and the Greek people were thoroughly sick of the on-and-off fighting they had endured for eight decades now. So, Venizelos was out, and in December, Constantine was back in as king after a popular referendum confirmed him. This is about when the wheels start to come off this whole thing. Greece, over the next several months, will see a major turnover in leadership. Venizelos had stacked the government and army with his loyalists, so the king and his guys were naturally intent on getting rid of them. The problem is that this caused a lot of administrative chaos, as new guys came in and had to learn the ropes. This was especially a problem within the army, because the officers being purged that had been loyal to Venizelos were also the ones who had the most combat experience. On top of that, the UK and the rest of the Entente had made all their deals with Venizelos and Alexander. Now, Greek politics had been turned upside down, and Lloyd George found himself stuck with the king he had helped depose just a little under four years previously. And the UK had placed itself right in the thick of things with the zone of occupation, right as people started asking if the Greeks could actually bring Kamal to the table. This was all really very awkward for everybody involved. Lloyd George, for his part, took the route of distancing himself from the situation and really hoping that everything just went well and Britain wouldn't have to actually assert itself against the Turks vis-a-vis -vis the occupation zone. He was still pro-Greek, and Greece itself would operate under the impression that they had the UK's support and blessing. It might have been this impression that wound up dooming the Greek expedition, as they may have thought they had Britain at their backs to help seal the deal. Little spoiler, they did not. After a year of campaigning in the rugged Anatolian countryside, the middle of 1921 found the Greek army deployed deep into Turkey. I'm going to sound a little insulting, but the Greeks really were punching above their weight here, and in way over their heads. Their army was built to opportunistically grab a blocks of land here and there as the situation allowed, which in the past had been helped by the fact that their territorial acquisitions had been populated by other Greeks. Now, though, they were deep in a foreign land inhabited by a foreign people that had a clear and developed sense of nation that they wanted to protect. The new government in Ankara refused the terms of the Treaty of Sevres, which led the Greeks to conclude that they had to march their army all the way to Ankara and force their capitulation, assuming they'd give up even at that point. It was around this time that the situation began to turn around for the Turks. 
I haven't really covered the military operations of either army in any detail, but it's so far been a fairly low-intensity affair, at least compared to the battles of the Great War. The early stages saw the Turkish army offer a quasi-guerrilla resistance, as it lacked heavy equipment or even small arms to fight a stand-up battle against the Greek army. The Turks did hang together, though, and denied any dragged-out battle where they could be destroyed in one go. Instead, the Greeks found themselves marching through the mountain valleys and stretching their lines of supply and communication ever more distantly. All the while, the Turks began to gather help. By mid-1921, they had managed to put down the separatist movements among the minority peoples to the east, and had even established relations with the Soviets to the north. For their part, the Soviets were eager to help keep the UK and France off their doorstep, and maybe even make a friend along the way. They started sending rifles and modest military aid to help out Turkey. Compared to the scale of armaments the Soviet Union would be delivering to its proxies during the Cold War, the aid was a little underwhelming, but the Turks were hard enough that it was a significant blessing anyway. A more curious source of help for Turkey were the French. A more curious source of help for Turkey were the French. They had been putzing around in the region of Cilicia, the southeast part of Turkey along the Mediterranean coast and along the border with Syria. The region was supposed to fall into the French sphere along with Syria. However, the French assumed the Greeks were operating at the bidding of the UK, which caused them to shift their support away from Turkish dismemberment and more towards Turkish empowerment. The French preferred a strong and neutral Turkey to a strong Greece that was a UK client. A deal was reached with Kemal, and French arms were before long being sold to his military. The Italians, sharing the French fear of the most strategic parts of Turkey falling to the British via their Greek client, and also in the middle of the internal chaos we covered in their episodes, abandoned their claims in the region and joined in the arms sales to the Ankara government. The influx of fresh equipment and the Greeks straining their own resources started a shift in the war. As the fighting stretched into the spring and summer of 1921, the Turks were able to go toe-to-toe more often with the Greeks, and started beating them cleanly in the field on occasion. Where they could concentrate their forces, the Greeks were still able to overpower their opponents, but as the distances became greater, this became a trickier prospect. Keep in mind that the Greeks didn't have the most modernized logistics network available to handle the rugged Anatolian countryside. Running headlong into hill and mountain country might not have been the best idea on the Greeks' part. Finally, towards the end of July 1921, the Greeks put together one last concentration of troops and sent the Turks retreating back towards Ankara. This was the moment of truth, and the Greeks went for it. It was at this point that Kemal was put in personal command of the army, and he chose the Sakarya River as the anchor of his defense. It would be the last major barrier before the enemy were at the gates of Ankara. The Greeks had the number and equipment advantage again, though this time they would have to cross barren terrain with harassing Turks behind them, only to come upon Kamal's troops dug into the hills. For over 20 days across August and September 1921, the two armies would hurl themselves at each other. When one hill was taken, it was counterattacked, retaken, then attacked again. The Greeks' supplies and nerve finally broke, though, and they were forced to retreat. It certainly wasn't the end of the war, not by a long shot, but it was the beginning of the end. The Greeks retired to hunker down in defensive positions while Kemal began reorganizing his army. But the victory had sent Turkish morale through the roof, 
and after a rest period to train up the fresh recruits being mobilized, the Turkish army would be responding with a larger force than ever before. It would actually be an entire year before Turkey would launch its counterattack to drive out the invaders. In the meantime, the UK and the Entente had largely given up on long-term Greek success. The best that could be hoped for would be a negotiated peace. Kamal, though, continued to refuse terms that would surrender territory to invaders. And on August 26, 1922, the Turks easily broke through the Greek lines. The past year had seen morale in the Greek army, and among the civilian population there, plummet. They saw no way out of the war, and their soldiers were stuck holding relatively distant positions in a hostile land. By the time the Turks had finally struck, it was really more of a mercy kill than anything else. Homesick and hopeless Greek soldiers streamed towards Smyrna and the prospect of being evacuated back to Greece proper. This started the crisis that brings our story back to the UK. This whole time, the British had been holding the Straits as a theoretically neutral zone open to all nations, but closed to all non-Entente armies. They had even refused the Greeks' passage across during the previous year. Now the Turkish army was advancing to reclaim their homeland, of which the British were sitting on the crown jewel. In September 1922, a message of warning was drafted by Winston Churchill on behalf of Lloyd George. It threatened the Turks with the possibility of war and all the consequences that would entail. Funny thing, though, the British didn't consult with their allies on that move. The message spread like wildfire to the French and British dominions. There had been a much more diplomatic message sent to those guys, uh, though, of course, the more threatening message sent to the Turks had reached them first. The Dominions were understandably upset that they had not been consulted on the possibility of war, and also the casual British assumption that they would join with no question. Not a single one offered concrete military support, and Canada went so far as flatly refusing aid before having an internal debate on the topic. Given the autonomous nature of the Dominions, this kind of break was at some point inevitable, though the British probably weren't expecting it so soon and at so delicate a moment. Common action within the Commonwealth would have to be handled diplomatically from now on, and starting a war out of the blue over what was obviously a matter of the UK's imperial ambitions might not have been the most diplomatic of moves. Prime Minister Poincaré over in France was not happy either about the unilateral action and threatened to withdraw the French contingent of troops in the region and abandon the British there to whatever fate awaited them. This created a crisis between the two partners that temporarily put relations on ice. Like, it was really bad, with the British taking the stance that the French had left their soldiers in Thrace to die on their own in the event of war. There were also French troops deployed in that region, but if fighting broke out, they were told to simply sit back and watch and not get involved. The French did agree to act as a go-between for the UK and Turks, though that was the extent of their involvement in the matter. Despite these diplomatic disasters, British troops took their positions to fend off a Turkish attack, and the Royal Navy arrived in the Straits to shell any troops that came within range. The situation was saved, though, by French diplomacy, and the Turks agreed not to push the issue after some of their soldiers had entered and then soon left the zone. The British had avoided either a military quagmire or an embarrassing withdrawal. The incident was not without its casualties, though. Back in the UK, this was the moment that the Conservatives of the British Parliament finally turned on Lloyd George. He was Prime Minister by their leave, as they held by far the most seats in the coalition, and now they were ready to go out on their own again. On October 23, 1922, the Tories broke the coalition that had held since 1915 and elected Bonar Law as Prime Minister. 
While he was certainly a capable fellow and had a long history of leadership in the Conservative Party, he was also well advanced in age and probably already suffering under the effects of the throat cancer that would kill him in a year's time. Unfortunately for the Tories, they didn't have a lot of options to choose from. Most of the party leadership that would have been natural selections for the spot had openly tried to keep the coalition with the Liberals together. That they had lost that power struggle within their own party meant they would be temporarily sidelined. One of the few notable acts of Law's time as Prime Minister was in calling an election to cement his position. This was carried out in the fall of 1922 and saw the Conservatives win a decisive majority. The Liberals were still split between Lloyd George and Asquith, and so fatally weakened themselves. The Labour Party, though, more than doubled their seats. The disillusionment with the first few years of peace had been severe, and this was especially so in the hard-hit industrial areas I, I talked about in earlier episodes. Notable also was that for the first time a pair of communist representatives were sent to Parliament. The Tories still had the edge there, but a newer kind of opposition with new ideas was rising to challenge them, and this time smearing them as a pack of Leninists wasn't going to do the trick. For now, though, Law could look forward to a reliably conservative government at home, which was good for him because the business of keeping the peace had not gotten any easier. After the November elections, he turned to resolve the Turkish situation once and for all. Law did not share Lloyd George's sympathy for Greek ambitions, and clearly saw the other major powers bailing out as a sign that the party was all over in Anatolia. Mustafa Kemal, for his part, did not want to make the UK a permanent enemy, and now that he was in a position of strength, was prepared to make a deal. During the Lausanne Conference in Switzerland, the Treaty of Sevres was discarded, and over a contentious nine months, the UK, France, Italy, and Turkey hammered out a lasting agreement. The Turks accepted the Straits being neutral to shipping and closed to military traffic, but it was returned to Turkish administration. This was a condition the British insisted on, as they strongly desired any Soviet Black Seas fleet to remain bottled up there. Turkey also renounced their claim to the Mosul province in northern Iraq in exchange for a fast-tracked League of Nations membership. This also lured them away from their earlier collaboration with the Bolsheviks, as they now were much less isolated. So, it was mostly win-win for the British. It was others that lost out on their territorial ambitions, and a much stronger and now friendlier Turkish state was warding off the Soviets from the south. While the treaty was being worked on, though, Another international incident took center stage. As discussed in previous episodes, the Ruhr Valley in Germany was occupied by the French over defaulting reparations payments. British-French relations, only slowly recovering over the whole fiasco in Turkey, were reduced to tatters yet again. The UK officially was firmly against the occupation, seeing as how it wrecked Germany's economy and made them again vulnerable to revolutionary movements. However, they also really didn't see anything that they could do about it. This was controversial, as the official action was to do nothing, aside from futilely trying to bring both sides to the table, which meant that the UK was simultaneously throwing their ally under the bus, while also standing by and watching a helpless nation sink into instant poverty. With the Luzan Conference still going on, the Rhineland brought to a standstill, and Mussolini pulling some shenanigans over the island of Corfu, Law felt the weight of his fraying health, and resigned on the 20th of May. He was succeeded by a man named Stanley Baldwin, who will be a much more permanent figure in our narrative. From here to 1937, he will be the leader of the Conservative Party, and for a little over half that time as Prime Minister. 
and it will be at the start of his first term as PM that I will be picking up next week. Join me then as we return to the now smaller UK and pick up with the increasingly acrimonious atmosphere back in the home islands. See you then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.